Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. President Biden and bipartisan lawmakers have struck an infrastructure deal, but the question is whether or not this will uh, result uh, in the bipartisan progress that everybody has been hoping for or whether it is just political theater. Budget hearings are continuing on Capitol Hill as GOP lawmakers assailed both Secretary Austin and General Milley on critical race theory and white rage with the chairman coming out swinging. China executed its largest ever air operations that violated Taiwanese airspace and conducted operations off Hawaii. This as Russia harassed a British destroyer in the Black Sea. Hardliners are in, I was going to say back in power as if they've ever been out of power in Tehran and uh, Afghanistan continues to crumble. Joining us to discuss all of this and more are Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm, Capital Alpha Partners, Dr. Patrick Cronin, the director of the Asia program at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top aerospace and defense lobbying firms, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who among his many roles is a senior advisor at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Everybody, thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure, Vago. Thank you, Vago. Great to be back, Vago. Good to be back. Thank you, Vago. Uh, an, an absolute pleasure, Byron. You had a little bit of a hiatus. Thanks very much for uh, join, joining us again, everybody. Thank you for making time for us. Uh, before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our uh, weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. Fink Contieri Marinette Marine sponsors our naval coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And General Motors Defense sponsors our technology coverage. Michael, uh, President, bipartisan lawmakers uh, had a deal, uh, a $1.2 trillion uh, deal, but now there is a sense uh, that uh, the wheels may be coming off. Progressives are not happy. Republicans aren't happy uh, because of their perception that the president, the um, right, is saying, hey, we gave Republicans almost everything they want in this $1.2 trillion package, and I'm not going to move ahead on it unless you give me you know, the rest of my legislative agenda. Um, I, 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 I think I can understand where he's coming from on that, in part because of a sense that the GOP's approach has been, you know, what's mine is mine and what's yours is mine too. Where do we stand on all of this? And is it, as you said a couple of weeks ago, that, that this is nothing more than political theater, ultimately? So uh, last week, I mentioned that both uh, Kirsten Sin- Kirsten Cinema and Rob Portman uh, had breathed some new life and optimism into a bipartisan infrastructure, uh, infrastructure deal, which I think w- was true. Uh, and Wednesday night, uh, a deal was struck uh, between a bipartisan group of senators and White House staff that were in the room on infrastructure that would be more traditional infrastructure, but it's still a big price tag, about 1.2 trillion, roads, bridges, tunnels, public transit, airports, ports, waterways, uh, a creative uh, bunch of pay-fors on there, which does not include uh, indexing the gas tax for inflation because that that would violate Biden's pledge on raising taxes on people who make less than 400,000, but it would include repurposing some of the unused uh, emergency relief funds from the emergency relief uh, legislation. Uh, and you know, then the next day, the bipartisan group of senators went over to the White House and uh, President Biden came out and said, we have a deal. They have my word. I'll stick to what we've proposed. And they've given me their word as well. Uh, and he also said neither side got what they wanted in this deal. But that's what compromise means. Right. But in the end, personally, I think that ended up being a bunch of nonsense because within two hours, uh, the president uh, gave in to 
the progressive position that there will not be a vote on a bipartisan infrastructure package unless there's a vote on a massive reconciliation package of anywhere from five to six trillion dollars that includes all the things the Democrats didn't get uh, in this bipartisan compromise. So it's not a bipartisan compromise. The Republicans aren't getting everything they want. The Democrats are the ones that want to walk away with everything uh, that they want. And Biden came out and said, if this is the only thing that comes to me, I am not signing it. And already we see this morning things starting to unravel. For example, Lindsey Graham, who was one of the original 11 Republicans who signed on to the initial uh, legislation, said, you know, I'm out. You know, no one ever told me that there was a linkage between these two. And he said, and I think rightfully so, that the Republicans who negotiated this did not know that there would be a linkage to this. And frankly, there's a great quote in Politico this morning by a, a senior GOP aide who said the president's comments did real damage. It's astonishing that he can endorse this bipartisan framework in one breath and then announce that he'll hold it hostage in the next. I completely agree with that. And McConnell concurs. McConnell said on the floor yesterday that the Democrats are pulling the rug out under their bipartisan negotiators. And that is very significant because I know people that were in the room Wednesday night when this deal was struck and McConnell came into that room very jovial to check in and saying, hey, do we have a deal here? Which was an indicator that it was very likely that the Republicans would have gone along with this uh, to get this passed. And as I said several podcasts ago, probably two months ago, that I felt that a lot of this was bipartisan theater. I ended up being snookered. I thought this was real, but in the end, it really did. I think the Democrats are mistakenly thinking that with a 50-50 Senate, uh, only a five-seat majority house, a presidential election that took days to call, that they have this mandate for radical progressive change, and I just don't see it. And unless the Democrats are willing to really compromise on this and the things we're going to talk about later when it comes to defense spending, I think the wheels are going to come off and we're in for a long, dark winter. Um, I uh, c couldn't agree with you more. I think it's a massive miscalculation uh, at the end of the day. Right. I mean, there are a lot of people who vote. I, I know that Democrats don't see it this way, but a lot of people did vote for Joe Biden because they couldn't stand uh, Donald Trump. And they thought that Joe Biden was going to be a centrist. Uh, and and this is going to have implications in 22, both in the House and in the Senate. And I don't and they don't have 50. I mean, that's the fundamental reality. They don't have uh, uh, 50 votes uh, in the Senate uh, to be tiebroken because it, Manchin and Cinema aren't going to go for it. And there are a lot of other it, members it, who, by the way, agree I, that I know you've talked to uh, about exactly. this issue as well. Right. Senators and members of the House. We've already seen two members right. of the Democratic uh, uh, Democratic members of Congress today come out and say that they're not going to support this. I mean, this is massive amounts of spending on very progressive um a very progressive agenda and priorities and massive tax increase at the same time, which is almost like Pelosi and Democratic leadership saying we don't want to win that keep the House in 2022. It's like they're giving up on everything. And I also think that this is something that could haunt Biden's presidency for the next three and a half years. If he is not going to show that he's sincere about working with Republicans to get a bipartisan solution on this, why should they work with him on anything else? You know, but before we move on, I, I do want to get to the uh, Hask uh, hearings uh, as well as appropriations and, and the continuing resolution. But, Dove, I should let you uh, come in on this, right, as, I mean, as a former comptroller and, and somebody who still talks to an enormous number of folks on the Hill. What, what does this uh, do, right? Because at the end of the day, we couldn't do another BRAC because of a sense that the, the Bush administration, right, like betrayed the process and pulled people off the hook. At the end of the day, something like this can have lasting implications from your standpoint. How do you see this? Yeah, I totally agree with what Mike said. I mean, if you look at two reactions, both out of New York City, I think that's going to tell you something about where the Democrats are. The first one was AOC, 
who pointed to the negotiations said they were all white. Now, why bring race into this is beyond my comprehension, but it seems to me that that's exactly the kind of uh, uh, view that so many progressives are taking and they're losing the forest for the trees. The other uh, New York uh, event, of course, is the mayoral election where unless this uh, new system they brought in can overturn what otherwise would have been a, a lock in the primary, um, the, the Adams is the guy who uh, won and he won because he was essentially for a Democrat in New York, a, a moderate centrist. Now that doesn't make him a centrist in countrywide terms, but it, but it does tell you something that even New Yorkers are looking askance at some of this extreme left stuff. If you bring those two things together and then superimpose them on what Mike just said, you begin to see why there's gonna be a lot of trouble for Democrats. And I would point you also to uh, an op-ed in the Washington Post by Fareed Zakaria, no right winger himself, who's saying very, very similar things about how the Democrats are basically blowing it. I believe I, I concur uh, on that. Byron, let's bring you in. You were listening to the uh, Hask uh, hearings. Uh, obviously, there were some fireworks uh, with uh, Austin and Milley and some of the GOP members, but we've got an appropriations process that's going on, a continuing resolution process. Uh, what jumped out to you over the course of uh, watching almost every single one of these hearings and reading just about everything that's been put out on it? I think the rhetoric of this, this go around has certainly been a bit more inflammatory and uh, charged, pardon, uh, charged on a partisan basis. And I, I find it different, at least compared to some of the hearings over the last couple of years, um, particularly some of the assertions made about, you know, what this budget does or doesn't do. Um, I'll, I'll leave the social issues, you know, for others to comment here. Um, you know, I think my two or three takeaways, look, the House appropriations mark on the military construction budget, I think first, you know, it's this broader question, they added a billion dollars. I have no idea what the actual causes of the Miami condominium collapse that's been so tragic, but it is uh, at zero sea level and it's a 40 year old building and it's a question of salt water inundation that, that had caused that building to start to settle. If that's the, the true cause of this, that's not just going to be a Florida real estate problem. That's going to reverberate through the Milcon budget and how people think about it. Um, and then the other part that I think was interesting, it came up in the um, Senate Armed Services Committee hearing on the Navy budget was the, the cost increase in the Portsmouth Naval dry dock. Um, we talked about inflationary pressure, um, but there are a couple hundred million dollars that were added for the shipyard integrated plan. And I believe some of that was just to cover the cost increase in, in the dry dock for that specific facility. And it's a reminder of how important these facilities are for sustaining uh, the, the fleet the Navy has. The DOD has not been able to sell or get much traction on the retirements that it's proposed, the divestitures that it's proposed in the FY22 budget. And certainly uh, the DDG 51 uh, cut was been a, a lightning rod that, uh, you know, you take these and expect the lightning bolts, but <clears throat> I fully expect that's gonna be restored. Um, I think the other interesting development though was that House Appropriations uh, subcommittee markup on the military construction budget, they added a billion dollars to the, to the uh, president's request for this. So <clears throat> that alone suggests that we're gonna start to see 
pressure on the upside to the top line. Now, again, you know, you saw House Chairman Smith, uh, House Armed Services Chairman Smith kind of hold the line here and really kind of try and pivot this debate to, hey, we really ought to be talking about how we're spending this money, not how much we're spending. And that theme also came out in some of the um, the subcommittee hearings. There was a, a Senate Armed Services Committee hearing on Air Force modernization. And, you know, there were two quotes that stuck out to me. One was by some of the witnesses who were testifying for the Air Force. You know, there has to be a change in the way we're investing our dollars. Uh, how we modernize is a very important we need a conversation we need to have. And I just contrast that with a tweet that Representative Luria posted about uh, you know, the Navy program changes. She said, general quarters, we can't sit by while the Navy is gutted for the sake of unproven technology. So I am just think it's been a, a, you know, an interesting round where not much is, these pressures aren't going to be addressed in, in a way that I think is going to get the DOD where it needs to be. Michael, briefly on um, all the budgetary mechanics that are going on up there and what it all means, right? I mean, I think this, there is there doesn't appear to me to be a sense that folks are going along with these, quote, hard choices, especially given that we are already hearing that the 23 budget uh, will be effectively a cut, right? Like a 1% cut or something like that, ultimately, or a reduction uh, you know, or, or a failure to maintain the rate of inflate, whatever you want to put it. Yeah, look, and obviously, if they do go that path, it's, it's, it's completely disingenuous for the Democrats to say, well, you know, we're cutting by 1% because we're trying to be fiscally responsible, right? I mean, we just talked about how much money the Democrats want to spend and how much we've already added to the debt and the deficit. So it's really, you know, more uh, partisanship. And I think the Democrats, again, are, are miscalculating, you know, because they, they do believe, I've talked to senior Democratic appropriators who feel that, by staying at the 715 number, uh, that way they can appease the progressives. And is, that is nonsense. I mean, the over 50 Democratic members sent a letter to the president asking for a 10% cut in defense on top, uh, and, you know, on top of that uh, 715. So they're not going to vote for these appropriations bills anyway. They need Republican votes to pass these appropriations bills. And right now, they do not have them. Uh, they are going to mark up the, the military construction bill today. Next week, they will mark up uh, the defense bill, as well as Homeland Security and state and foreign ops. Uh, but I do not believe that they will have the votes to get these bills off the floor. Uh, there's already a lot of talk about a year-long CR. I'm very alarmed to hear defense Republicans saying we're better off with a year-long CR than to let these bills pass. Um, but there's still uh, a long way to go. Uh, I think what's important, too, you know, we, we talked last week about the, the hearings with uh, the service chiefs testifying. Even they you know, asking, we're asking for more money. So the, the hearing that we, we just talked about this week uh, uh, before Adam Smith's committee uh, was striking in the sense that, uh, you know, before the hearing, I know that the senior Democrats talked to Austin a million and said, you will not only support the president's budget before this committee, you will defend it. <laughs> and, and they did do just that. Uh, to, and it got to the point where ranking member Mike Rogers even looked at them and said, I, I get it, don't worry, but we will get you more money. Uh, and, and it does appear um, that the I, Senate- I just have to- I, I... No, go ahead. I say no, no. it does appear at the, the from what we understand, the Senate seems more amenable to adding uh, twenty five billion dollars uh, in defense spending. So this still has a very long way to go. Um, I, I just wanted to uh, point out uh, the Duffel blog uh, post, very humorous website uh, that said uh, Congressman avoids eye contact with generals panhandling outside his office, and it's each of the service chiefs saying, you know, I need more ships. Um, 
anyway, it was, uh, I thought it was very funny. Um, Dove, anything you, you want to add before uh, we move on to PDI, uh, et cetera? Sure. Uh, General Chamberlain, Major General Chamberlain, who's the uh, Army budget guy, has, has already said, he said it, I think, yesterday, that they are planning on a CR. Uh, and, and so that's kind of bad news when they're already, when the military is basically throwing its hands up and saying, we know we're not going to get what we want. We're not even going to get close to what we want. And so um, might as well face reality and, and assume a CR. That is not good for a major reason. If we're trying to stay ahead of the Chinese, then not having new starts not adding money to programs that need to accelerate is nothing less than a disaster. Patrick, let me bring you into this uh, conversation. You've been very, very patient. Um, there is a lot of debate about the Pacific Defense uh, Initiative and whether or not it's up to the task, right? Some maintain that it's spot on and, and the administration uh, has done a, a bad job marketing or taking credit for the right elements of it, whereas others say it falls completely short. All this is coming as China has dramatically been escalating its air intrusions uh, into Taiwanese airspace, uh, as well as conducting operations off uh, Hawaii. Uh, and, and Washington approves uh, sale of new weapons in the region, including F-16s and, and, and missiles to the Philippines. What do, you, what do you make of the PDI? Where is this uh, debate and, and discussion going in terms of the right kind of capabilities the nation needs in order to be able to deter a China that is not really missing a beat, right? I mean, we thought a couple of weeks ago the United States organizing its allies and partners against Beijing would, would help change the tone in Beijing. We realize that that's just not going to happen, whether or not it portends badly ultimately for, for China. Well, Vago, one reason why it's difficult to have one strategy is that we have to make assumptions about how aggressive China is going to be. We're also going to have to make assumptions about how supportive our allies will be. Will we even have a visiting forces agreement with the Philippines, for instance, because if we don't, we don't have a geographical position in the South China Sea, which is huge when you talk about a Taiwan scenario. Um, so that's why you can talk about a $5 billion Pacific Defense, uh, you know, uh, initiative, but um, a deterrence initiative, but you will not be able to buy that much with it. And they're arguing over, do we defend Guam and the airfields on Guam, which is essential if we're going to be able to project power um, from the South, or uh, do we spend it on another ship and, and F-35 equipment and so on? And, I, and there's just not enough money there to deal with all of those questions about China's potential belligerence and aggression. Um, you know, are we dealing with a, a, a Taiwan scenario in the next five years or 10 years? Um, or is it really 20 years we need to be thinking about? And the Pentagon is trying to shift resources more toward uh, balancing some of the long-term challenges technologically from China, but that opens up the risk that we may fail on deterrence. And on that question, I would cite uh, an, an interesting paper that came out of the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, ASPE, this week about the Chinese may think about deterrence differently. They have a concept of offensive deterrence. It's the escalate to de-escalate, if you will, or to or sort of strike preemptively to frighten the United States out of the South and East China Seas. That may of course fail miserably and escalate to the nuclear level. All of these questions um, have to be addressed for us to know what do we want to invest in? And that's why reasonable people can disagree as they did this past week in Congress over do we need the, defense of Guam first, or do we need uh, yet more of a Navy and Air Force uh, coverage in the region? Well, we need both. 
Um, and we certainly need allies like the Philippines in their geography. And right now, um, Duterte, President Duterte, just extended for the third time in the last eight, you know, 12 months, um, uh, the uh, reprieve of saving the Visiting Forces Agreement on which our any presence, including our Enhanced Defense Cooperation Agreement um, that we negotiated uh, seven years ago now, um, can, can move forward so that the United States and the Philippines cannot just defend the Philippines, but we can also have this positioning in the South to, to say block uh, or break up a blockade of Taiwan if, if China wants to go down that path in the next five or 10 years. Um, what is China hoping? Um, I, I appreciate the escalate to de-escalate, but it, it doesn't really, you know, I was talking to Taiwanese uh, friends this week, doesn't seem like they're particularly panicked about what's uh, going on. Um, but they, you know, but the Chinese are pushing this, are now operating uh, in proximity to Hawaii, right? Uh, asserting, you know, giving lie to the whole notion, right? That no, 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 we're just defensive, and you know, it, it, it's not the case at all. And in fact, if you look at how Chinese are operating uh, regionally and in fact worldwide, what what are the Chinese trying to accomplish by escalating the way they're escalating? Because they're actually helping the United States organize allies against them, which is a strategic, right? It is. Um, well, Xi Jinping is trying to show that he has totally consolidated power and that he's now broken the succession system in China effectively when we get to next year. But that's what the July 1 centenary celebration is going to be, quite a spectacle internationally. It's all about Xi's power. It's all about China coming of age, if you will, under Xi. Um, so they want to show how tough they are. In reality, uh, yeah, they're not interested in escalating to de-escalate um, at this point. But there are elements within the PLA and elements within the party uh, that would, if the United States seems to lack resolve, they may see that as an opportunity. And so we're not talking about 2021, but down the road, do we give them an opportunity? And so that begs the question, what kind of strategy is the United States pursuing in East Asia, in the Pacific? Are we uh, pursuing Andrew Karpanevich's archipelagic strategy? Because that requires a lot of distributed lethality in and around the South and East China Seas. Or are we pursuing something that's more offshore um, and we're, we're, we're doubling down on Guam and maybe even Darwin and Northern uh, Australia or in, in HMAS Sterling, you know, in terms of a home porting down in Australia in the, in the third island chain, second and third island chain. Those are questions that um, are, need to be addressed strategically. Right now, we're pursuing more of the archipelagic defense, but we don't have the full resources behind it. Um, we don't have the full political commitment behind it that we need from allies. We do have people like uh, Japanese Defense Minister Kishi, Prime Minister Abe's younger brother, talking again uh, and frequently about how Taiwan is essential for the defense of Japan. Um, and that's good in terms of Northeast Asia, but what's our posture in Southeast Asia? That's where we're vulnerable. And that's where the Chinese are trying to scare Southeast Asian countries, break up Southeast Asian unity, uh, and make sure that the United States doesn't get a stronger foothold from the South, because that's where China breaks out and, and expands its military punch and power, not to escalate necessarily, but to dominate and control. Um, Byron, um, let me uh, bring you in because you've wrote, written a whole uh, series of, uh, or, or at least uh, several thoughtful notes uh, on, on this issue, right? I mean, time, 
uh, ultimately is not on our side, right? We haven't responded for a long time. We're behind the eight ball. I think there is a widespread recognition of that in strategic circles. Uh, I've been asking that question for a number of years and senior leaders have said anything from we've got two years to sort ourselves out to six years, but nobody gives us much longer uh, than that if we're going to continue our deterrent edge over the over the Chinese, given their, their uh, trajectory. From a programmatic standpoint, are we making the right moves here if we do want to deter China broadly, right, going beyond the PDI from your standpoint? Look, I, I think it kind of what Patrick just mentioned, uh, you know, what's our concept and our time frame? Um, I'm in the middle of reading Max Hastings' uh, book that was just relieved, uh, released on Operation Pedestal, which was a Royal Navy operation that relieved Malta uh, in 1942. Uh, you know, it really became a submarine versus aircraft battle against the Royal Navy, um, which was, it's quite amazing and quite staggering. You know, when you, you kind of think about that scenario in, in a 2028 environment to relieve Taiwan, for example. Um, so I think kind of sorting through that, uh, those, those differences and what kind of fleet and, and force structure you're gonna need uh, depending on, on what you believe is most likely. And I'm not convinced uh, I'm not convinced that we've really got a strong consensus on this yet. There may be within the DoD, but at least something that's publicly conveyed, I'm not sure. I, I do think that uh, you know if, if it really is a highly focused scenario on, on Taiwan, you can't forget the rest of the world. And I keep coming back to that. Um, we'll probably talk a little bit about Iran and the, the outcome of that. Um, uh, election on June 18th, but I don't think you can paint much that's optimistic in the Middle East. And unfortunately, you know, a world where we're going to focus entirely on China and North Asia is apt to prevent some or present some very significant surprises, as it always will. So um, I know that's kind of a meandering answer, but I think um, you know, looking looking at how some of this stuff is going to could potentially play out. Um, and, and the debates that I'm seeing in Congress right now as they review the FY22 budget. I mean, we just seem to be stuck on, I think DOD is trying to move ahead. I'm, I'm encouraged with kind of the Navy experimentation that's going on and maybe their prudency in, in assessing some of these new technologies. But, you know, I don't think we can get to there from here if we keep doing what we have been doing. Um, obviously, resources, uh, strategy, uh, right? Speaking of bad behavior, and Dove, I want to go to you because you served in the Reagan administration and are a cold warrior uh, at, at heart. Uh, um, you know, Moscow is behaving badly. In the, in the wake of the summit, there was an expectation uh, that the situation would improve. Ambassadors are returning uh, from each nation to Moscow and to uh, Washington. But we now have the incident with HMS Defender, a Royal Navy uh, Type 45 destroyer uh, that sailed off of Crimea. Uh, indications that it got buzzed at the very least. Shots may have been fired uh, as well, even though the ship was in international waters. Uh, the ever charming deputy, uh, Russian deputy foreign minister, uh, uh, London for its part says that nothing untoward happened and there was a live fire exercise nearby. Uh, the ever charming deputy uh, Russian Deputy Foreign Minister Sergei uh, Rubikov channeled his very best Soviet-era apparatchik by saying, uh, quote, we can appeal to common sense, demand respect for international law, 
And if that doesn't work, we can bomb um, as, as if the ship, the British ship was in the wrong, which which does not appear to be the case. Right. Um, and then Moscow has then surged, um, you know, Kinsol missile equipped uh, MiG-31 Ks uh, to Syria. Well, how do you how do we counter this? Uh, ultimately, right? Because bad behavior begets bad behavior, you know, whether it's coming from Washington or whether it's coming from Moscow or Beijing. Uh, and, and everybody's watching when when you, you know, draw a red line and you don't enforce it, ultimately, the whole world begins to get skeptical uh, of your word. It goes to budget negotiations, right, Michael? If you're not trusted in one negotiation, you won't be trusted in another negotiation. How do we how do we do this? Or is this a bull in the China shop the way that We've got to live. Dove, start us off, and then Patrick would would like to get and anybody's take uh, on this. Go ahead. Well, um, first of all, it looks like something really did happen. Um, the the uh, BBC had a reporter, a guy named Jonathan Beale, who was on the Defender, and uh, the British deliberately transited uh, Crimean waters because they're international, and knowing full well that the uh, Russians considered them uh, territorial waters because they've uh, taken Crimea illegally. Um, shots were clearly fired. Uh, it, to argue that this was merely an exercise, well, maybe it was an exercise, but it certainly was an exercise to make it look like something was going to be fired at, was being fired at, at the defender. I think part of the, the challenge for us is we have to start to stop thinking of deterrence as, as reactive. If you look at what uh, a lot of what we did during the Reagan administration, and particularly what John Lehman tried to do with uh, uh, his, his the fleet, uh, uh, particularly uh, up north with the major exercises, uh, not all that far from uh, the Soviet Union, it was essentially to, to take an offensive uh, deterrence approach. That's not to say to hit anybody, but it's to say that you let the other guy start to worry where we're going to respond. Instead of drawing a, a red line like Obama did in Syria and then backing away and really losing a lot of credibility, we basically say, we're going to get back at you, but we're not telling you where. And you're going to be sorry. I, I think that's the only way that uh, somebody like Putin, who, of course, remembers exactly what we did during the Cold War, may begin to back off. As long as we simply say, you're a bad boy, don't do this, and we'll throw a couple of sanctions at you, uh, nothing much is going to happen. Uh, I would also mention that that actually does apply. I'd be interested in Patrick's reaction uh, to China and particularly to Guam. Uh, Guam is right. part of the United States. Uh, people forget that just because it's not a state. But remember, in 1941, Hawaii was not a state either. Uh, and it seems to me that uh, making it very clear to, uh, uh, to the Chinese that messing around with Guam is messing around with the United States territory and citizens uh, might get through even if somebody like Xi Jinping. Patrick? Vago, I agree with uh, what I was saying about on the military side and even connecting the Russian and China uh, sort of dimensions as they try to build out their own spheres of influence. Um, I make a few points here on the political legal side too, the United Kingdom, Britain, is standing up for international law. Customary international law is what you do on a day-to-day -day basis. And if the United States, or in this case, the United Kingdom, um, don't stand up for the fact that we don't accept the annexation of Crimea, then it becomes not just uh, de facto, it becomes de jure. 
And, and so it was very important for Britain to stand up. And if the British don't stand up, who's going to stand up? The French and Germans were trying to get a summit meeting uh, with Putin. That was shot down uh, this week by the European Union uh, of all actors um, because they didn't think this was the right time to be doing that. Um, so United Kingdom is standing up for international law. We support that. Obviously, Russia has to fight back on that. And so they uh, pretended to, to, to launch uh, an exercise, uh, you know, shots. Uh, that were not intended to hit the British. So there's a, a, a sort of a game of chicken going on uh, uh, in this uh, arena. China is in a similar uh, boat, you might say, um, where they are trying to expand their own sphere of influence in maritime Asia. And U.S. territory in Guam is critical for the United States. They know it. Um, they want to make sure that uh, the United States feels threatened, that they cannot defend Guam and that they cannot also project power to break up something like a blockade of Taiwan or an invasion of Taiwan in the future or other less, lesser ambitions perhaps of China in South China Sea uh, and in East China Sea. Um, so it's very important for the United States to have strong deterrence because China will back down from that. But we would not been able to succeed is backing them down from the gray zone, uh, you know, in Russia's hybrid uh, activities, the nor nibbling strategies, the, the, the sort of incremental strategies. And that becomes a big challenge. And then if you get involved in a nibbling strategy, you know, standoff with over, you know, Scarborough Shoal or in the South China Sea, you know, does that escalate? Are we prepared to escalate? And to escalate means we've got to be prepared to defend our resources and our bases, including in Guam. We have to have allied territory as in the Philippines, uh, as well as allies like Japan and others join any fight not because we want the fight, but because we're trying to deter the fight in the first place. And right now we have a, a favorable balance of power, but it's heading in the wrong direction. I mean, after 40 years of 9.4% average GDP growth between you know, 1979 and, and, and 2019 for China, they've built a massive military and a modern military. It's not as good as ours. It's not as good as ours with allies, but it's getting better and we have to stand strong and together and united and operate and stay uh, present in order to be able to continue deterrence throughout this decade and into the next and beyond. Dov, give us uh, the, uh, very briefly, I, I wanna go uh, and talk to the exchange uh, between and among Secretary Austin, uh, Mark Milley, as, as well as members of Congress uh, during that Hask hearing. Um, but I, I, you know, give us, how did Elmo Zumwalt handle being encircled by the Soviets in the Mediterranean during uh, the 67. Well, Zumwalt was, was really nervous about it. And he wrote about it in his memoirs because they had over 100 ships surrounding the Sixth Fleet. I mean, what really happened is we went to DEFCON 3. Uh, and we did that because uh, Brezhnev was threatening to send paratroopers in to take on the Israelis. So in a sense, uh, we had jointness before jointness became official. And once the uh, Soviets saw that we were ready to go strategic on them, uh, lots of things happened and, and everybody kind of backed away. But Zumwalt wrote that uh, how nervous he was because all our ships were surrounded by these guys. Uh, and uh, again, I think one of the lessons of that incident was what Lehman did with, with the argument about horizontal escalation. There was a huge debate over whether that made sense, but it seems from the Soviet archives that they did take notice of the fact that we weren't just going to respond the way they expected us to respond, but we were going to do it in ways they didn't expect. And that, of course, is what a deterrent is all about. Um, I, I want to take everybody um, 
you know, very quickly, um, you know, and, and Michael, you know, comment on this uh, if if you want to, or maybe Byron, we'll, we'll start with you because you're uh, so historically minded. I believe everybody uh, here is. Um, GOP is clearly trying to drum up outrage. Uh, but I thought uh, Chairman Milley's answer uh, answers were, were right on the mark. He wants to understand white rage that prompted the sacking of the Capitol uh, and, and that reading Marx or Lenin doesn't make you a communist, uh, even though there's a, a lot of work on critical race theory or uh, you know, what books have been uh, proposed. This question was uh, about um, you know, wh- white rage, uh, a white rage class. Uh, the chairman reminded everybody that West Point is a university uh, at, at the end of the day. And it's very important for military leaders to better understand uh, these dynamics in, in society. And he took grave umbrage at, at, at trying to politicize uh, the, the, the military in this process. What do you guys make of these exchanges? Um, and, and where are they going? I mean, aside from the GOP talking to a small corner of its base or, or, or to its base, is this moving any needle more broadly? I mean, where, where on earth is this going? I mean, I think the problem, Vago, is just what you raised. <clears throat> it, you know, it's going to play, the people who are raising these questions in the hearings, it, it'll play on Fox News. Uh, I don't know, you know, how much of this made it to the network news um, and how much that even matters. I, I think within the community we deal with, we're all highly aware of it. Um, I frankly doubt you know, much of the U.S. population was aware of that exchange. Um, I think it's not going to go away. It's going to continue um, this year and certainly into the midterm election. I think potentially, particularly when you look at some of the things that uh, some of the Fox uh, news personalities have been saying, it can be turned against them. Um, so it may have negative consequences for the GOP in, in the 2022 midterm election, but that depends on how it's used. I agree with that. I mean, what Tucker Carlson said about Milley was disgusting. Um, and to talk that way about a highly decorated veteran chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff is, uh, is beyond belief, quite honestly. Um, but the fact of the matter is that the military is still probably still the most trusted uh, profession in the United States. And for the uh, extreme uh, Republican right-wingers who supposedly are so patriotic and wave the flag at every opportunity to go after the military and somebody like Milley in particular, uh, I think will in fact uh, hurt them badly. And it, it's simply going to aggravate what's in any event looking uh, very, very difficult for, for both extremes. The, the Democratic extreme is, is hurting Democrats' prospects, and these guys on the extreme right are, are undermining their own prospects. Uh, that does mean that this election in 22 is going to be a lot more of a toss-up than uh, people might have thought uh, when Biden was elected. I, you know, I, I don't know if I agree with that, because there are friends I have who are active as well as retired who still lean remarkably right despite these statements and comments, and in fact are increasingly turning on their leaders for raising these issues. So I'm, I'm not sure that I think this is a losing Republican strategy. I, I think the Republicans are doing this knowing that it is sowing discord and division within the ranks and that they are still getting an ample share of votes no matter how they treat the leaders 
uh, which is, I think, a miscalculation Republicans more broadly made about Trump. Republicans thought that they, the party was more important. These ideas are more important than, than party people, principles, uniform. And so that's where I think it's going to be very interesting. Well, let me come um, back at you, because I think that you're certainly right. There are an awful lot of people wearing uniform who may sympathize with some of the things, not necessarily as explicit as Carlson, but with a general idea. But what really matters, as you know, is, is how the independents vote. And I'm not sure that people who aren't as close to the military but have a vision of the military uh, will uh, see all these attacks as something that they support. Um, it, it's going to be very interesting because the independents that I talked to are, were looking for a centrist Biden. They did not like Trump. But they are willing, but they are also uncomfortable with how the entire white rage critical race theory is being taught, and they and they are very sympathetic to Republican talking points on it and and repeat it. And I've had DoD civilians, uh, you know, say say to me, uh, "Look, this administration doesn't care about war fighting; uh, it just cares about social justice, and and that's okay," which is kind of a bad perception to have been created, given that the administration is spending an awful lot of time uh, actually on, uh, on on countering this stuff. Let, let's just um, move on. I, I want to point out also that uh, a, a new book by Michael uh, Bender uh, on uh, the events during the last uh, administration, and his title is, frankly, we did win this election, the inside story of how uh, Trump lost, um, shows how, uh, you know, had Mark Milley not been the tough guy that he is, uh, you may have actually, you know, that, that there was an enormous amount of pre uh, pressure by the president and the administration for the military to get involved in cracking skulls, uh, as he as he put it, uh, which would have been, uh, you know, obviously very, very problematic. Uh, and I think, um, you know, any any brief uh, thoughts uh, on that before we win, Michael uh, or, or Patrick, Byron, uh, Dove, any any comments as we move on from this? Because I genuinely believe if, if Mark Milley had not been as tough as Mark Milley is, we might be in a very different position now. And well, Mark let me just, to his credit. Well, yeah. Well, let me just add too, because it, it dovetails with obviously what happened on, on January 6th. And to no surprise, uh, Speaker Pelosi did uh, announce that she will create a select committee uh, to investigate uh, the attack on the Capitol, especially uh, since the Republicans did not agree to a bipartisan independent commission. So now she's going to get what she wants and she's going to control the scope and the agenda. And this will be something that will drag into 22 and give the Democrats the ability to make January 6th um, a big issue, if not the issue, in the 22 election cycle. Uh, and, you know, the question will be, too, will Republicans even cooperate with this select committee? Will they appoint members? And if they do appoint members, are they going to appoint serious members who are going to take a look in, into what really happened? Or are they going to appoint folks like Jim Jordan and Marjorie Taylor Greene and, and Matt Gates? I frankly think it's going to be more of the latter, and this becomes like a partisan cage match versus a, a real serious investigation. I would just say that uh, Millie, Millie's uh, role on, in January 6th, which is becoming ever more clear, uh, his toughness there, I think, uh, for that reason, his pushback on this other issue, the woke issue, um, gives him a certain credibility. I think the concern uh, is not so much with the people in uniform, but with the a leadership of the department that has been pushing this and uh, obviously doing so uh, maybe far more than Millie would have done if he, if he had his own druthers. 
And I think people have always, uh, not always, but certainly for some time, differentiated political leadership from the people wearing uniform. And so uh, that has to be taken into account as well. Um, Patrick, did you have anything you want to add as a veteran? Vago, I'm just very grateful that General Milley is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. <laughs> uh, well said. I, I, I do have to say he was uh, extremely articulate and uh, believed that he made uh, a very, very strong point uh, and, a, and a necessary point. Um, all right, let's uh, quickly, uh, uh, Dove, uh, lead us uh, off on this. We've got a couple of minutes left. Uh, new, uh, surprising, surprising how the Iranian elections worked out. We've got a new uh, hardline uh, government in uh, Tehran, obviously coming out right away and saying, hey, there is no going to be no connection uh, among our bad behavior, our missiles and the nuclear deal. If we do a nuclear deal, it's going to be a nuclear deal uh, or we won't do a nuclear deal. Right. Um, and then we have uh, an announcement by the administration that 650, count them, 650 American troops will remain in Afghanistan. I'm not sure how that really changes much of anything, uh, seeing as how the airport is being guarded by the Turks now, right? Uh, walk us through both of these, what they mean, uh, how we should uh, think about them, and then, uh, you know, anybody else can play in on this as, as well. Go ahead. Well, to, to begin with, uh, yeah, to quote the uh, famous line in Casablanca, I was shocked, shocked that a right winger would get all that Raisi the former uh, uh, head of, of the uh, justice system, the, the chief justice who was in charge of all kinds of killings in the 80s, uh, would become president of Iran. Um, and, and, you know, uh, it's not clear that he's uh, enthusiastic at all about a deal. And he knows very well that uh, he's pushing the United States and, and the West into a corner by saying, OK, you want a deal? Well, maybe we'll make a deal. Maybe. Uh, but we're not going to touch those missiles and we're not going to stop doing what we're doing uh, elsewhere in the region. And uh, I've calculated that they spend roughly something less than three and a half billion uh, in the region, uh, making trouble in Syria and in, and in Iraq and in Yemen and elsewhere, uh, Palestine. And uh, the Koreans have just announced that they're going to unfreeze seven billion dollars of uh, frozen Iranian uh, funds. Well, that's two years of funding all this trouble. Uh, there'll probably be more unfreezing uh, as part of a, a nuclear deal. And so what we're not only will uh, the Iranians not stop what they're doing, but we're likely to give them enough money to make even more trouble. Uh, this doesn't look very good. And at least the administration is beginning to back away. And they're now, they now seem to be saying, well, you know, if this is the way it's going to go, then maybe we don't want to have a deal at all. Uh, I don't know. Um, it depends who you talk to in the administration. Some are desperate for a deal. Others are not. Uh, we'll see how it plays out. But uh, I'm not very optimistic about what happens uh, after a deal. With regard to Afghanistan, the, the one silver lining in this miserable cloud is that by leaving 650 troops there, you could always add to them. It's much, much harder to get out completely and then go back in. Uh, but if you've got some troops there supposedly to protect American personnel, uh, if anybody gets shot, anybody, anybody gets hurt, um, there's always an excuse to put more people back in. So the fact that we've at least uh, acknowledged that we have to leave some troops there and by leaving some troops there, we're going to have some 
obviously some uh, contractors to support them as well. Uh, that is, it, it's, it's not much, it's not much at all, but at least it, it, it's a glimmer that uh, we may come to our senses and uh, send a few more troops there so that the country doesn't collapse. Patrick, is this undermining American credibility in Asia at a time when we're going to our allies and partners and talking to them or, or not, right? The administration's view is this is separate and apart. We can be a good ally and, and partner, but this is kind of a road uh, to nowhere, even though I think the way we pulled the rug out from under the Iraqi, excuse me, the Afghan government was deplorable. But want, want to get your sense, given that you're talking to more people in the region than I am. Well, yes, is the short answer, Vago, but there are a lot of bad uh, options here for any U.S. administration, including the Biden administration. Yeah, and yes, you can criticize the Biden administration for how they've gone about trying to make a decision on Afghanistan and then maybe uh, sort of reversing uh, a little bit of it. Um, but the reality is, are we, where are we going in the long term in Afghanistan? Um, Right now, according to Longmore Journal, um, 50 of the 400 districts of Afghanistan are in the Taliban hands. Well, that's with all of the treasure and uh, lives that we've spent on Afghanistan. So, you know, keeping a, a modest number of troops on the ground is not going to have a winning effect. We're not going to control Afghanistan. We are losing control of Afghanistan. We were never in control of it. Uh, and uh, that's, that's a problem. Um, so... While drawing down from Afghanistan looks like the United States might cut and run, uh, uh, losing, it also doesn't look good. So we are really between a rock and a hard place in terms of trying to um, extricate ourselves from being overcommitted in Afghanistan, preserve enough stability in Afghanistan, hand over uh, responsibilities to both Afghans and regional players uh, so that we don't have to handle as much, and still pivot toward uh, the Asia Pacific. But um, you know, what Doug was saying about Iran, uh, what's going on in the Middle East, Russia, by the way, North Korea has just rebuffed uh, the administration's efforts for uh, unconditional negotiations. We have a lot of problems. <laughs> and so we're going to have to figure out strategically how to triage and how to uh, focus on the central challenges that we must protect. So Afghanistan is not something we really can control the future of. Um, we can control how we get out. We can control whether it falls tomorrow, but we really can't control its future because we're not willing to pour in those assets. And that's the, that's the hard reality uh, of Afghanistan policy. And we're going to pay a price sooner or later for things further falling apart, I suspect, in Afghanistan. Um, I, the unfortunate thing is, the fortunate thing is the administration is going to withdraw all those Afghans who did support us, uh, whether it's 10,000 or 100,000. And I think Guam is going to become the clearinghouse for that. So that's going to be an interesting issue I'd like to discuss in the future. Uh, very quickly, uh, Michael, how are lawmakers viewing uh, the pullout? Is it relief and sort of, hey, let's, let's just be out of this? Uh, what are they privately telling you as you're having these conversations with them? Well, uh, actually, uh, it's very split, and it's very split even within the parties. Uh, obviously, uh, most of the Democrats supported the pullout, but I uh, hosted a reception on Monday for a very senior Democrat on the House Armed Services Committee, and in his remarks to our group, uh, talked about his disappointment uh, in the withdrawal from Afghanistan, that he feels it's a mistake and also doesn't like the way it's being handled. Uh, most Republicans do not support it, but there are many especially in the Trump faction of the party that want to end the forever wars. 
uh, and we're supportive of, of the Afghan withdrawal. But, you know, I just think um, as time goes on, uh, there's going to be more and more voices on the Hill, I think, expressing their concern and dissatisfaction uh, and wondering what what was it all about as as we see a lot of the gains that we made uh, get reversed. Byron, last thoughts? Look, I think on the Iranian election, the fascinating thing was, you know, if you look at who actually voted uh, and the an effective protest vote, the very low turnout, there's a legitimate question about the the legitimacy of, of the Raisi presidency and the rest of the regime there. And I think, I don't know where it's going to go. I, I don't know how Iran is going to solve uh, its multiple economic issues. You know, this revolution is not delivered for the Iranian people. And you just wonder if if there's not going to be a blow up, uh, you know, along the lines of some of what we've seen in some of the other countries that were engulfed in the Arab Spring. And that, that could be a very interesting issue later this year into 2022, as much as everybody's focused on JCPOA. And not that really matters much for the United States, but I think the stuff that's going on in Lebanon, you know, it's been a slow motion state collapse, but uh, it's getting worse. And that's just another one of these little flashpoints that you have to keep an eye on. Uh, and uh, very uh, uh, briefly, uh, talk to us about loss rates. I think that and and the short period of time that naval warfare can claim an enormous number of ships. Well, this was back to Hastings book. And I, I think I just, again, recommend people are starting to get their summer reading lists uh, together. Um, you know, Operation Pedestal, Royal Navy lost two of its carriers. The Eagle was sank and the Indomitable was heavily damaged over a two to three day period in trying to relieve Malta. Um, they had a fleet of seven aircraft carriers at the time. And again, this was mainly a submarine air battle on the Axis side. So, you know, when we start thinking about high-end conventional warfare, deterrence, um, you know, these numbers are really going to start to matter, but it also is going to matter what kind of fleet you have. The, the Italian uh, surface Navy largely sat out that operation, um, and Hastings has some very good observations about why that was so. Guys, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Uh, always a pleasure. Have a great weekend and a great week, and looking forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Vago. Thank you, Vago. Thank you, Vago. Thanks, Vago. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.